Salute salve. No worries. Brie and Fry have not disappeared into a field research to discover the most orthodox way of calculating the day of Easter. They will be here soon, with another extraordinary pope attempting to be the most popey of all the popes. My name is Marco Cappelli, and I'm the host of the podcast Storia d'Italia, a podcast about the insanely complex history of my country in the tongue of my country. If you speak Italian, or you just want to improve it while satisfying your thirst for Italian history, why don't you pay me a visit? I start during the Roman Empire, at the time of Constantine the Great, and have made my way through a couple of centuries. I'm now dealing with King Theoderic, the guy that ruled Italy during the pontificate of Symmachus and Antipope Laurentius. Now that was a story. You can find my show anywhere you get your podcast from. But now, back to our fantastic duo with another papal history. Arrivederci! Hello and welcome to Chit Chat Channel. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 81 pope agatho are you ready for pope agatho no is that like is that like egg like eggsy or is that like ag like agatha it's like agatha but with an o agatho that's why i've gone with agatho as a pronunciation because it's probably more like agatho or something like that in the you know when you start to put it all together i mean but the other version of his name is agathon so that would also indicate agatho so that's what we're going with it's not egg, it's ag. We're off to a strong start, but hey. We're doing so great. For those who did not see it, there was a boomer who came at us really hard, mainly because we were women and had a lot to say about our silly giggles and chit-chat. So um, we're going to give you extra silly giggles and chit-chat because we're doubling down. We usually cut out bits and pieces because we just talk. We are best friends and actual human beings that communicate to one another, so there's that. But on to this, because this is a pope who has some stuff behind him. We're not in that era of, like, super small popes, short popes for a bit, so... Is it butt stuff? Because you sent me that butt thing earlier. <laughs> I did send you a butt thing earlier, but that is because it came out of nowhere on my Facebook, and I thought you needed to see about a movie called, what is it called, Butt Boy, where butt boy. someone believes that people are disappearing into another person's butt. That's like the haunted vagina, but with somebody's butt. Yeah, exactly. But Agatha, so, also called Agathon, was born in Palermo in Sicily, and for the first time in a very long time, the Liber Pontificalis does not give us a name for his father. We cannot say that. But what it does tell us is that Agatho was, quote, kind and gentle, that everyone attested him to be cheerful and pleasant. Which is nice. Now, Agatho did not join the church early in life, like many of our other popes, but rather went on to have a classical education in Latin and Greek, and a career in the laity that is only vaguely described as being a successful businessman. He also got married and may have had children. He goes and he lives a very full life before he joins the church. But 
At some point, it seems that Agatho became compelled with a holy desire to leave his secular life behind and become a monk. And we know this because a letter exists from Pope Gregory to Urbicus, the abbot of the monastery at St. Hermé in Palermo, discussing this prospective monk Agatho, judging that he should be accepted into the monastery if his wife also joined a convent. So this is Pope Gregory, Epistle 48. Quote, Since then, Agatho, the bearer of these presents, desires to be converted in thy love's monastery, we exhort thee to receive him with all sweetness and love, and by assiduous exhortation kindle his longing for eternal life, and study to be diligently solicited for his soul's salvation, to the end that, while by thy admonition he shall persist with devoted mind in the service of our God, it may both profit him to have left the world, and his conversion may be to the increase of thine own reward. Know, however, that he is to be so received only if his wife should wish to be similarly converted. For when the bodies of both have been made one by the tie of wedlock, it is unseemly that part should be converted and part remain in the world. This is a letter saying that there's a man here named Agatho, he wants to be a monk, but in order for him to do that, his wife also has to convert. There is a loose historical agreement that this is the same Agatho that becomes Pope. Now you might be saying to yourself, what the actual f*** right? this letter is from Pope Gregory? Because he was Pope ages ago. Is it like some sort of monk thing where they just are like, in the spirit of Gregory? No, no, they actually think that this was a letter written about this man by Pope Gregory. We are on episode 81. Pope Gregory was episode 66. It's a long time ago. How old is this man? Is he a vampire? <laughs> there you go. There's the shock and awe I was looking for. Did he come into the church as a four-year-old? No, because remember, he had lived a whole life. He went as a successful businessman and had a wife and potentially children. Yeah, but things aren't lining up. It's generally accepted. As strange as it is, this is what they say, that Agatha was somewhere around a hundred years old when he was elected to the papacy. Oh my god. Yeah, this would make him the oldest pope at election, like, by far. He gets a papal bull just for that. He is a 100-year-old pope. He's still kicking? Wow. After all, he went through, like, all that other junk? He had a whole life ahead, like he's lived two whole lives there. Yeah, he's lived two entire lives by the time he becomes Pope. But unfortunately, we can't really verify this. This is what people say about him, but all we have to potentially verify his age is this letter from Pope Gregory. So we can't be absolutely certain that he's talking about the same Agatho, despite the general consensus. So, uh, just as, as a counterpoint, because this would make him, again, the oldest pope at election by far, and because we can't verify it, the ones we can verify, the oldest pope at election is Pope Clement X in 1670, who was elected at two months shy of 80 years old, and the oldest pope at time of death was Pope Leo XIII, who died in 1903 at the age of 93. So he would have been older than the oldest pope who died when he was elected. Wow. A hundred years old. And just because we are jumping around here a little bit, but Agatho didn't go directly from the monastery in Palermo to the papacy. 
there's still some more of his life to cover before that because he's an old man. At some point, likely in the late 660s, when the first Muslim caliphate attacks were launched on Sicily, Agatho came to Rome and served as a priest after he had been in a monastery. And according to historian Geoffrey Richards, this is going to account for a lot of our upcoming Sicilian and Syrian clergy members making their mark on the papacy. You know, we've talked about how the Muslim forces are driving the clerics out, and we're going to see a lot of that, and we're going to be talking about that in a lot more depth as we go. So within a few years of being in Rome, Agatho was made the treasurer to the church because perhaps some of his business skills from his secular life were useful. And apparently he was very talented and capable in the management of church money. In March 676, he was also made a cardinal priest by Pope Adeodatus II. And two years later, when Pope Donus died, Agatho was elected his successor. Again, at a hundred years old, if the sources are to be believed. But this didn't mean that Agatho was going to be an inactive pope. Because according to the Liber Pontificalis, on top of papal duties, he decided that he would retain his previous role as treasurer at the same time for as long as he was able. Quote, Contrary to custom, he became Arcarius of the Roman Church, and he dealt with the affairs of the treasureship by himself, issuing receipts under his own hand through the nomenclator. When weakened by illness, he appointed an Arcarius in the customary way. So up until the point where he's actually going to get ill, he is both Pope and Treasurer at the same time, because he's like, I'm just gonna manage everything. It's pretty impressive. This is a fairy old man. Now, the first major thing that occurred in his papacy happened fairly quickly, and it had to do with the Church of England and the famous St. Wilfred of York. We mentioned him briefly already, but St. Wilfred is gonna come back and get in nearly as much trouble as Athanasius did back in the day, so we're gonna have, like, Wilfred interludes for a bit. Okay. The future saint, Wilfred of York, was the Metropolitan Bishop of Northumbria, and I'm saying that in air quotes because it was a vaguely undefined diocese at the time. Northumbria was kind of just a hand-waving region. But he had been deposed by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Theodore of Tarsus. And this was not the first time that Wilfred had been removed from his bishopric. A revolt against the king in his diocese while he was away in Gaul at one point had led to the king deposing him on suspicion that he supported his rebels. But Wilfred had been reinstated by the Bishop Theodore when that had all happened. The same man who is now deposing him for the second time. Wow. So Theodore believed that Wilfred's diocese of Northumbria, vague generalization, was too large. And when Wilfred ended up in a conflict with the new king of Northumbria, Egfrith, he was expelled from York, so expelled out of his city, and Theodore, the archbishop, took the opportunity to seize Wilfred's diocese and divide it into three new jurisdictions. So we get York, Hexham, and Lindisfarne. All of which, by the way, he appointed new bishops for, leaving Wilfred with nothing. He also refused to acknowledge that Wilfred had ever been a metropolitan bishop, 
and only Canterbury had that honor in England, despite the fact that Pope Gregory had issued plans for both York and Canterbury to have that status. So he's saying, oh no, you never held that role. You're not important enough, so now you have nothing. Wow. So Wilfred comes to Rome to seek the intervention of the Pope in October of 679. Agatho takes this in and he convenes a synod at the Lateran to investigate Wilfred's claims, making him the first member of the English church coming to Rome to have the Pope adjudicate on local diocesan matters. You know, we've had English bishops come to witness synods or to learn from Rome, but this is the first time in history where we have an overt acknowledgement of the Pope having the authority to make decisions for England over the bishops who were already there. Even though we know this is a power he has, this is the first time it's being used. It's something that's otherwise implicit as the Pope being the head of the church, but when it becomes overt and formalized, it's, it's worth noting, right? Agatho's synod determined that Wilfred's deposition had been non-canonical, and so he should be reinstated as a metropolitan, and that the monasteries that had been previously under his control should be returned to his authority. However, they also determined that that whole Northumbria diocese was too large, so these new divisions that had been put in place should remain, and that if there were going to be new bishops in them, Wilfred should be the one to choose them or confirm the people who were in that position. So this is great news for Wilfred. He receives a papal degree to this effect, and he returns to England. He's prepared to get his bishopric back to oversee these new bishops and choose them if he so feels. Unfortunately, when he arrived, the king Egfrith refused to acquiesce to the papal degree and arrested Wilfred keeping him in prison for a short time before he was exiled. Yeah, things are not going well for Wilfred. He was then recalled when King Egfrith was killed in a battle in 686 to reconcile with the new king, Aldfrith, but by 691, he was being expelled again. So, this is not the end. He will reappeal to the papacy again in the beginning of the 8th century. We're going to see him come back up. and. I am heavily, heavily summarizing right now because St. Wilfred's life is wild. Oh, so do we get to do him on Patreon? We will do him on Patreon, even in what I've just given you. I have already skipped over him narrowly being arrested elsewhere. And then there's also the fact that he will attend one of the most formative English councils in history. He will be involved in shipwrecks and fighting arguing with kings, being exiled, and all the while establishing monasteries and making huge impacts in English Christianity. Patreon or short episode attached to very short Pope Man, we will see how that works out. But back to Agatho, because this is not Wilfred's episode. And of course, the main thing that happened during the papacy of Agatho was something that we started to talk about a little bit at the end of Donus' episode. And this has to do with the letter that was sent by Emperor Constantine IV that had arrived in Rome proposing an ecumenical council to finally settle the monophyly controversy. Yeah, and then he was dead. Yes, then he was dead. So Agatho is the one who receives the letter addressed to the most holy and blessed archbishop of our ancient Rome and universal pope. So, you know, it's a good start before he even opens it. 
And Agatho decides he's going to seize the opportunity and immediately went for planning this council. If he's got an emperor who is open to discussion and a council for the first time in ages, he does not want to sit and wait on that. He is like, no, we gotta do this, let's go. Right away, while he's planning this council, Agatho orders for several synods to be held throughout Western Christendom. So the bishops could get together and all in their own regions confirm the existence of the two wills of Christ, both human and divine, and then they would all come together to determine what the best, most accurate terms would be to provide the best argument to present at the council. Go figure out exactly how you would argue this thing so that we have every opportunity to prove our point. So these synods were held in Milan, Gaul, England, and in Rome, and from each, each one that was held, several legates were sent who came together in Rome in Easter of 679, bringing declarations of faith from their representative councils. In total, 125 bishops met in Rome and signed their adherence to the agreements of the councils, and the most compelling and learning legates of those ones that had been sent were then chosen to represent them at the actual council in Constantinople. Now, unfortunately, Agatho is not going to live long enough to see the end of the council. He's going to die in January 681, and the council will go on till September of that year. And because we're also going to give this council its own episode next week, we're only going to cover what is most important for Pope Agatho himself before we move on. And that is the letter that Agatho sent along with the legates as they left for Constantinople. This letter becomes very important. In his letter, Agatho begins by praising the council for the importance of their work, and then immediately reminds the bishops and the emperor that the pope is the apostolic successor of Peter, and therefore has chief power in matters of God. And I will quote for you. For it was most pious and emanated from your most meek tranquility, taught by the divine benignity and for the benefit of the Christian commonwealth, divinely entrusted to your keeping, that your imperial power and clemency might have a care to inquire diligently concerning the things of God, through whom kings do reign, who is himself king of king and lords of lords. He might seek after the truth of his spotless faith as it has been handed down by the apostles and by the apostolic fathers, and be zealously affected to command that in all the churches the pure tradition be held. Great, I'm so glad you're calling this wonderful council. It's great that you recognize that I have the prime authority, and it's great that you want to be so pious as to preserve the true faith. He goes on in defense of the primacy of the papacy for quite a while, but to avoid bad will from the emperor, he also praises Constantine for being a man of religious toleration, for not having committed violence against the monothelite heretics. It's very slick. Ooh, these people that are all around you, they are so wrong, but good on you for not being violent against them. It's a brilliant piece of political machination. Because, remember, in the East, most of the prominent bishops and theologians would have been monothelites, and it was the favorite theology in the East, supported by many emperors. By praising Constantine for not being violent against this heretics, he's providing somewhat of a backhanded compliment 
but also allowing Constantine to save face if the council does end up condemning monothelitism. Because then the emperor wasn't wrong, per se, by not suppressing it beforehand, just tolerant. And now he can go ahead and condemn it, and it's all fine. It's great. Very, very wise. Very, very slick. He then goes on in his letter to profess the two unconflicting, uncontrary, and unopposed will of Christ, human and divine, drawing on the traditions of the previous five ecumenical councils and the apostolic tradition of the church and with lots of scripture to provide a length of evidence. It's a great letter in terms of what he's trying to accomplish with this council. And this is the letter that is presented on behalf of the West during the council and becomes the foundation for their entire argument. So this becomes like a, a Tome of Leo kind of moment. And in the end, it's the Patriarch of Constantinople, George, and the majority of the bishops at the council who will all accept Agatho's letter, which leads to an official agreement to condemn monothelitism. Oh, man. Finally. <laughs> so the final canons of the council were drawn, professing the two wills of Christ, condemning monothelitism and all its adherents, including Pope Honorius, and affirming the inerrancy of the apostolic see, and most importantly, the line, by Agatho, Peter spoke. Huge for papal primacy. So the council ends with monothelitism condemned, and the schism with Constantinople is officially reconciled. We have to give Agatho some credit for that, even though he will be dead by the time the council finishes, because they are basing it off his letter. Now, because Agatho died in the middle of the council, we're going to leave it there for a moment and circle back to the other piece that Agatho was able to barter out of this good relationship with the emperor. Because while the pope and the emperor were corresponding to plan this council, Agatho also took the opportunity to discuss the obstacles that the Byzantine emperors had been throwing in the way of papal elections. We've discussed many times the waiting for imperial confirmation that left long periods with no popes, not to mention emperors trying to prevent the consecrations of certain popes like Severinus and then all of the hell that happened to Pope Martin. And on top of all of this, one thing that we've never really discussed because it hasn't come up in any of our sources thus far was that apparently there was also a tax that a cleric had to pay the empire when they were consecrated, not just for the popes, but all the way down to every priest, deacon, bishop, and pope. So when they're consecrated, they have to pay a tax to the emperor for the privilege of being confirmed and consecrated. Wow. Yeah, so the empire is making bank after <laughs> all of these clerics, so... And it turns out that for a lot of these clerics, the tax was very prohibitive, considering how some of these lower clerics would be earning next to nothing. And this is Agatho's main concern. And he's able to get an agreement out of the emperor that the emperor will either will reevaluate the tax and then either reduce it or abolish it entirely, depending on what he finds. This and the cooperation of the council would go a long, 
long, long way to defrost the relations between the empire and the church. He's now scored a great victory for theology, but he's also scored a victory in removing a tax burden from the church to the empire, which is going to affect right down to like the littlest of little men. Now, unfortunately, because of Agatho's death, this isn't fully resolved in his lifetime, but he was the one who obtained agreement for the reevaluation, and it's a first major step. So far, he's doing pretty good. And now it's Liber Pontificalis Omen time. I quote for you. In his time on the 18th day of June, in the 8th indiction, the moon underwent an eclipse. Also in that month, July, August, and September, there was a great mortality in Rome, more serious than is recalled in the time of any other pontiff, so that parents and their children Brothers and their sisters were taken in pairs on beers to their graves. Afterwards, it kept causing devastation out in the suburbs and walled towns all around. That's not good. No. And we have an eclipse and we have a plague. So based on astronomical records of historic eclipses, this was a lunar eclipse and is verified to have happened. And two, the great mortality is the plague. Did people look at eclipses? Like, they didn't have those fun boxes to be like, don't look directly at the eclipse. The general layperson on the ground would have no idea not to look at the eclipse. Oh, and then they'd be struck blind by the eclipse. It's an omen. Yes, definitely. That could definitely happen. And so then the great mortality is the plague, which swept through northern and central Italy, taking a fairly high death toll as is recorded also by Paul the Deacon. It wiped out entire families, people in northern Italy fled into the mountains to avoid infection, and apparently angels would come to knock on doors and alert the inhabitants about how many would die inside. I don't like that. I am going to quote from Paul the Deacon. And then it visibly appeared to many that a good and a bad angel proceeded by night through the city and as many times, upon command of the good angel, the bad angel who appeared to carry a hunting spear in his hand, knocked at the door of each house with the spear, and so many men perished from that house the following day. The bad angel strolling along with the good angel. The good angel will tell him how many people are going to die. He knocks that spear on the door, and that's how many people die. Okay, I don't like him. No, it's it's not a good time. This is this is a bad plague. And within 6 months, the plague also took Pope Agatho, who died on January 10th of 681, still in the middle of the ecumenical council. And I mean, you'd think that given his incredibly advanced age that it would be an old age/natural causes type death, but no, it was the plague. And Paul the Deacon adds that the plague continued to ravage northern Italy until the arm of St. Sebastian was translated from Rome to Pavia to ward off the disease. And uh, St. Sebastian is the patron saint for protection against the plague. So, yeah, there you go. Get protected. Get protected. He was buried in St. Peter's, and we have two epitaphs. The first is short and reads, the highest priest Agatho holds firm the covenants of the apostolic see. There is piety, there is ancient faith, 
The undefiled badges of the fathers remain, nourisher, through your efforts. I like that. I think it's very concise and just like, yeah! The second, as recorded in Wendy J. Reardon's book, says, The pontifical summit was supported by the weight of his virtues, as a star shines, as thunder resounds. What the source and author of his teaching advises, he accomplishes. For he forms by his deeds those whom he teaches by his words, while at the same time his virtue was equal to the summit of honor. Endowed with these merits, the supreme bishop Agatho adorns his office with his way of life and administrates it with skill. He holds firm the packs of the apostolic see. Behold his godliness, behold the pure distinguished faith of the fathers remain inviolate because of your efforts, caregiver. But who could number the proofs of your morals since your life was the very model of virtues? High praise. Yeah, definitely. Very, very high praise for this Pope man so far. So this is not quite the end of his story because Pope Agatho's tomb became the site of many, many miracles. So many, in fact, that he is known as Agatho Thaumaturgus. Thaumaturgy is not a thing you want a miracle to happen. That's not the miracle I want. <laughs> it translates to Agatho the Wonder Worker. Okay, thank God. <laughs> I play too much D&D. Thaumaturgy is not a miracle I want. <laughs> it makes nonsense. Agatho does not make stupid things. He is the Wonder Worker. But the unfortunate side of this is that no sources actually elaborate on what the miracles were, so he is just Agatho the Wonder Worker. Perhaps he just does do thaumaturgy. He's a cleric and he does thaumaturgy. There you go. We brought it all together full circle. You manifest a minor wonder, a sign of supernatural power, and you can make your voice boom, or you can cause things to flicker, or you can make the ground shake. That seems about right. That seems perfect for Agatha the Wonder Worker. And slam windows open and shut. That's more Eugene's territory, all right? So, but yeah, that's Agatha. And now we can rate him. Yeah, let's rate him. But first, let me tell you that I definitely googled what happened. Did people just burn their eyes out in the past? <laughs> and they're definitely Plato. And I quote, I decided that I must be careful not to suffer the misfortune which happens to people who look at the sun and watch it during an eclipse. For some of them ruin their eyes unless they look at its image in water. There you go. See? It's been happening forever. <laughs> it has been happening forever. I assume they, like, tell each other not to do that thing. Well, I'm sure they did, but, you know, if you live in a small rural village in central Italy, you may have not have seen one ever in your life, and then suddenly it's like, oh, this thing is happening, oh my god, and you look at it, and then... I'm very glad that every five years since the dawn of time, people have been like, don't look at that. It real cool, but don't look at that. Yeah, don't look at it directly. Papatum infallium. He was remembered as charitable, benevolent, and of profound humility and learning. He's the first pope to intervene in church matters in England in terms of accepting the appeal against a deposition and issuing decrees to reinstate Wilfred of York. The king might have ignored it, but it's still a first. The big one's obviously the council. He didn't live through it, but his letter becomes the basis of the argument for the West, therefore becomes the foundation of diophilite theology in the canons. 
They say the phrase, by Agatha, Peter spoke, which is papal primacy and papal infallibility, and the schism with Constantinople is healed, and the major bishops of the East agree to condemn monothelitism based on his arguments. So there's that. He gets them to not prohibit clerics with terrible taxes. And so many miracles occurred that he is Agatha, the Wonder Worker, Thaumaturgist. So what do you think it's worth? Because it's pretty good. Can I give him like a nine? You can give him a nine. Oh, should I give him a ten? Uh, I'm... What are you going to give him? Let me gauge your your yours. I'm looking at our spreadsheet here, and and I was curious to see, by comparison, what we gave Martin. Because Martin did very similar things, just with a lot more boldness and gusto. And you gave Martin a 7, and I gave him an 8. And I think that, to me, what Agatho did is pretty much on that line. So I'm going to give him an 8, just like I gave Martin. And let's give him a 7. Okay, so then he will get the same score, which is a 15 out of 20. Fructus prohibitum. In the Liber Pontificalis, there is this comment. He honored the clergy of various ranks with preferments beyond what was appropriate. Perhaps he had some favoritism. Agatha. It doesn't say, like, nepotism. It just says maybe he had a little bit of favoritism. So, to be fair, he is a a hundred-year-old man, <laughs> and he's probably tired of everybody's bullshit. Definitely, definitely were tired of everyone's bullshit. And, you know, that's not something- I don't know. It's worth maybe a point. An old man yelling, get off my lawn, is not fructus prohibitum worthy. I mean, it's not great because you're supposed to, uh, you know, advance people based on merit. But, I mean, we're not talking about selling offices of the church here. We're not talking about any of that. We're not talking about just appointing your family members. So everyone to him is just like small dose people. Yeah. And... That's fine. Sometimes that happens. So do you want to give him a zero or- A zero. Okay, you'll give him a zero. I'm gonna give him one just because we never get to score in this category. We're gonna get some scores eventually. There's gonna be popes all over flinging their dick about. It's gonna happen. But for now, I mean, the fact that someone actually wrote down the fact that he had favoritism, it must have been enough to be noticed, basically. So I will give him a point. Seculari impactum. He got the emperor to agree to reevaluate or abolish a consecration tax expected of all levels of clerics. So if this had fully come into fruition in his papacy, I would give him points in Papatum and Phallium for it much more significantly. But this is an agreement based on his secular relationship with the emperor. So maybe it's worth a point or two. Yeah, let's go with, like, one. Okay, you give him a one, I'll give him one, he'll get a two. That feels right. Fossium Sanctus. Okay, so, I have a photo for you. As always, this is this man, who does not look a hundred, by the way. No, but he looks old. He looks old, but we've seen some really old, raggedy-looking Pope men. They were living through some stuff. He did die of the plague, though, so... You'd think he'd be a little bit more raggedy, but 
I kind of just like it. He's got a really bushy beard. So he clearly does not comb and or trim his beard. It's got... He doesn't do it with his hair either. He's got like 17 cowlicks. Yeah, he's definitely living wild and free. That's for sure. But I mean, he was a monk, right? Not not dealing with those vanities. <laughs> what do you think it's worth? Um, I'll give him like a four. This is okay. a man who would have dreadlocks and you'd be like, are there bugs in his hair? Oh, okay. That was... That was not where I was going with it, and now you you have changed my perspective. No, this is 100% a man that you would see on the street and be like, are they crawling with bugs? Yeah, okay, he's getting no more than a four from me for that now, so he will get a score of two when you divide it out. There's wild and free, and then there's are there bugs? Well, there's that. I will agree with you. Are there more photos? There is more photos because there is an image of him from the Menologian of Basil II from about a 1000 AD. And it is an illuminated manuscript and calendar from the Eastern Church. So this is a depiction of him from the Eastern Church. It's very Eastern. Oh. Yeah. Why is he so mad? He looks so angry. He's holding his book and he's like, don't you touch my book. Get off my lawn. Well, he got a haircut and a beard trim and he probably heard that you made comments about him having bugs. And now he's offended. It's all your fault. (sighs) Well, also, I did find a picture of a potential reliquary of his, but it was at one point for sale on eBay. Oh. Take this with a grain of salt. It's an old folded reliquary with a relic from St. Agatho. Some for scale. It's not a body part, as the description says. It's more like a relic and a wax seal. But yeah, it's just a piece of folded paper that says St. Agatonis <laughs> PP on How much did it go for? I don't quite know. It doesn't say, because this isn't an actual... That person um, really likes making those. Yeah. It really looks like they're folding, like, a a receipt from Costco and writing Saint whoever, PP. Yeah, the description's terrible, and it says, well, I know that if you bought it, and you bought it with shipping with registered priority, it was $10. None of this seems to be legitimate at all, but it was there, and it came up, so I was like, wow, okay, we need to include this. The whole illicit trade of relics is still a thing? I guess they're wrapped in whatever the toilet paper, but whatever, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, who? what's inside of it? We don't know. Why don't you show me the inside of your toilet paper? Don't do that. <laughs> I don't want that. Fry, <laughs> you're inviting a lot of weird pictures. Make sure if you're going to send her that, you send them directly, because I, I run the I Pontifex page. Run. I don't want to see that. <laughs> Terrible. I've cursed you. You have. I will send every single one to you if anything comes in. Please don't send anything, people. Tempest Pontificus. June 27th, 678, to January 10th of 681, two and a half years, and a score of 0.625. If he was age 100 at the time of his election, he would be 103 at the time of his death. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! He's known as Agatha the Wonderworker. Of course he's a saint. And unfortunately, 
for you. He is a legitimate patron saint of something, so you can't make him patron saint of insides of toilet paper or anything like that. He is the patron saint of Palermo, where he was born. Okay, that's fine. Which brings us to our total score, which is a very respectable 21.625. Nice. I am pleased with that. Good job, Agatho. And I, I think when I ask you this next question, there's a bit of a discussion to have here because we have to decide if he is papally enough and pizzazzy enough for a papal bull. Is he? I will remind you that you wanted to give it to him for being a hundred years old with no further information. I still want to give him some. I want to give it to him too because he is the foundation of the theology that will condemn monothelitism. He got that council going. He's doing a great job for papal primacy and all of those things. I Yeah, this is an easy one for me. Good job, Pope Agatho. Congratulations. But we are not done because we have thank yous to make. Again, we have so many thank yous to make because things keep happening in quarantine that are wonderful, I guess, for us. So... First, we have some patrons to absolve of their temporal sins. So we would like to thank Andrew Schneider and Benjamin Murray. Ego te absolvo. I would also like to thank Time Travel Talks for featuring us as a content creator on their constant promotion of content creators on Twitter and Cara DiDamasio, who helps run that. So thank you very much. We also need to thank our listeners for making March our biggest download month ever by a long shot. Thank you so much for listening and downloading. That's really cool. We also hit 200,000 downloads. Awesome. We need to thank Robin Pearson, Talbain, from Tal the Bean. History of Byzantium, if you already don't know who he is. Robin, thank you so much. He placed a promo for our show in the beginning of his episode, and he sent me so many books. So many books about Byzantium because they're not the easiest source out and he was wonderful, wonderful about it. So thank you so much, Robin. And also to Carlos because Carlos is the MVP. He already sent us two new books. And they just keep coming. And I am so excited because one of them is about the Swiss Guard, which I have no like hard sources about at this point so i'm very excited about that um i'm also very excited about the other one he sent because it's the source i use all the time all the time so thank you so much for everyone who is supporting us with material with the reviews with shouting out about our shows just and just by downloading you guys are all amazing and i'm just feeling all the warm and fuzzies right now so it's a good time and I guess with that, we have actually finished, and we can say thank you, and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.